Okay, now that we're finished with the letters to the seven churches, the the real work of interpretation is going to begin. Um, in chapters four and five, we're going to uh, going to be presented with a scene that is it's central to the whole book. Uh, the the churches right now, as we've seen through the letters, are going through persecutions, trials, dealing with uh, um, their own sinful proclivities. But um, despite all the things that the first century church was seeing, uh, they need to see what these two chapters are, are going to tell them, and, and we do as well. Uh, Jesus is, uh, in chapter 4 and chapter 5, Jesus is the Lamb who sits upon a throne. God's in control, even though things look hard uh, persecutions are rampant. You know, sin is going on. Uh, Jesus is still King of Kings, Lord of Lords, and He's sovereign uh, even over the events that are taking place in the church, as bad as they seem for those uh, seven churches uh, of Asia Minor in the first century. But before we even begin, there's uh, there's an important question that we need to try to answer uh, before we even start trying to understand what John is seeing here in chapter 4 and chapter 5. Um, the question is, are the events taking place uh, in the that are we're going to see in the heavenly throne room here in chapter 4 and chapter 5, are these events um, uh, taking place at the same time that the the events in the churches in Asia Minor were going through in their trials, or is John pointing towards some time in the future? Um, if you're just joining our study to uh, Revelation, I'd strongly urge you to go back and and listen to uh, the introduction, the, the MP3s uh, on chapter one. Uh, it, it won't be very profitable for you to just jump right in the middle of this book. Um, John is uh, John wrote this letter in order um, in, in an order. Uh, and he wrote it in that order for uh, for a reason. So as we're going to see in uh, just about every aspect of the letter from here on out, uh, there are lots of different opinions as to what the symbols mean. And I've often said that if you ask five different people about Revelation, you're going to get six different answers. Um, I also recognize that... Um, you know, this is this is an emotional issue for for a lot of people. So before we even get into the text, let me say right on the outset that these uh, these issues of eschatology are not issues uh, that uh, that Christians should necessarily divide over. You don't have to break fellowship with people who don't hold your exact view. And they're they're extremely, extremely intelligent and godly believers who who um disagree about all these things uh, uh this must not be um like a line in the sand where we refuse to fellowship with each other uh and for goodness sake if you if you've got a pastor in your church who loves you and he's poured his life into you and your family and he holds a different view of eschatology than you uh you're just an absolute idiot if you if you let that get between you and and him uh, there are men who I respect, admire, who are a lot smarter than me, who, who disagree with me about the text of Revelation and the uh, eschatology of the end times and, and all that. And you know what? That's okay. You need to take what I tell you and what I see in the text, and you need to go test it for yourself. Study the text, the allusions to the Old Testament that we're going to see, and you look at it as a whole and you make your own decision. Don't trust that what I say is the absolute gospel truth. You study these things. Study to show yourself approved. I'm a... As many people know, I'm fallible, prone to mistakes, and you know. In in the interest of full disclosure, I'll say that that I've not always uh, exegeted Revelation correctly. Uh, I've not always held the view that I hold now as far as uh, what Revelation's trying to disclose to us by using these Old Testament pictures. So you approach this subject and this text with humility. You approach it with grace. And you uh, you study to show yourself approved. So let's just. Uh, Let's just begin reading the text, and, and we aren't going to get very far before we have to stop and discuss huge disagreements among different scholars and commentators. So uh, verse 1 says, after these things, after the letters of the the seven churches, after John has been given the letters to, I mean, the messages to the seven churches, it says, after these things, I looked and behold a door having been opened in heaven. Now, many translations are going to say was opened or a door standing open, but this is this is my translation. The verb here is perfect passive. So uh, it says a door having been opened in heaven. Uh, and the ver and the first voice which I heard as a trumpet speaking with me, saying, "Come up here, and I will show you that which much that which must take place after these things." Now, 
there's so much going on right here in this first verse. We're going to have to take it apart piece by piece. Uh, before we look at after these things uh, at the very beginning, a lot of people take that to mean, uh, you know, uh, uh, after the time of the church. But really, it's just talking about the verse one after these things. He's talking about after Jesus has given him the revelation to the seven churches. Um, but make sure you understand what I was saying about the perfect passive when I read the verse to you. Uh, John looked and and uh, he says a door had been opened in heaven. Uh, he's not seeing a door opening. Uh, he is seeing that a door had been opened in heaven and he and he hears the same voice that he heard in chapter one remember that in chapter one he said the voice sounded like a trumpet it was jesus's voice he was the one walking among the lampstands and this this voice said to him here in chapter four it says come up here and i'll show you what must happen what must what's it is necessary to take place we saw that phrase in chapter one too uh, almost everyone who is of the dispensational view is going to tell you in one way or another that this is the point where the church is wrapped off the earth um i'm sorry i, I just don't see it uh, even when i held uh, the dispensational view i didn't see it here i didn't see the rapture of the church here um there's absolutely nothing in this text that a first century member of any of those seven churches would have understood to be teaching that they would you know be taken out of harm's way by a secret coming of jesus here uh, the voice that sounds like a trumpet is not signifying the final trumpet that, you know, when the believers meet with Christ in the air, that's in First Thessalonians four sixteen through 18. And it is taught there. Uh, but the trumpet we hear here, the trumpet that John hears is the voice. It's the same voice that he heard as a trumpet in chapter one. We're already told there that it's Christ's voice that. To, to John that sounded like a trumpet. So go back and listen to chapter one and you'll see that this is this is an Old Testament allusion to God's voice on and his presence on Mount Sinai when the sound of a trumpet grew louder and louder. We talked about that there in chapter one. Uh, the reason the voice is compared to a trumpet here is so that the reader will remember the first voice that spoke to John back in chapter one. Remember, we've had a lot of text. We've had a lot of things go on since then. And so John is calling our remembrance back to the voice that sounds like a trumpet that he heard in the chat in chapter one and you know there's lots of arguments some people argue that because the word church doesn't appear again in revelation until chapter 22 that that this shows that the church has been removed from the earth um but we're going to see that although the word church doesn't appear the church is still present i mean those who hold the uh the testimony of jesus christ are still present it says that you know those who hold the testimony of jesus christ well who is that you know and, i mean and besides that if we if we use that logic we can you know we can say the word jesus doesn't appear in the book until chapter 12 so that must mean jesus is not there to chapter 12 i mean of course not that's not how you do that's not how you do exegesis of uh of um of you know uh apocalyptic text i mean he is jesus is there he's lion of judah he's lamb slain before the foundation of the world he's described in many different ways uh and and the church is repeatedly referred to as god's saints throughout revelation so i can already feel the angst of people who've been told different their whole lives and hey i understand it i mean you just you just do your best to read the chapter, read chapter four, verses one and two, without importing anything of what you think, what you know. And you tell me if you see a worldwide removal of the church there. You think that the readers to the seven churches would have understood it that way, reading it for the first time. Uh, and, and, and listen, I'm not saying that the last trumpet at the last trumpet believers won't be called up to meet with Christ and be changed in the twinkling of, a li of an eye. Uh, the Bible teaches that. So I believe it. What I want you to ask yourself is if you see that right here. In, in chapter 4 of Revelation. Um, I'll tell you what I do see. John himself is told to come up here. But this in itself, it's, it's a very common thing in the Old Testament when God commissions a prophet to speak to his people. John's going to be brought into the heavenly throne room uh, of God. He is going to be brought into the heavenly tabernacle. That was the pattern God gave Moses to build the earthly tabernacle. Uh, when God commissioned the tabernacle's building, uh, he gave Moses a specific pattern. And in Hebrews, uh, I think it's chapter 12, we're told that that pattern corresponded to a heavenly reality. And this is the heavenly reality. This is the true tabernacle. Um, there were lots of Old Testament prophets who shared the exact same vision 
that John is given here. I know you may not have heard that, but Ezekiel saw God's throne when he was commissioned as a prophet. And we're going to see that uh, Ezekiel's vision is very closely related to John's vision here. Ezekiel saw the heavens open in Ezekiel 1.1, and he saw a vision of God's throne moving with angels and eyes and thunders and lightnings and the same things that we're going to see here in Revelation. Um, Isaiah was also taken into the throne room of God in, in Isaiah chapter 6, which uh, you probably know that already pretty well. Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple, and that's where God commissioned Isaiah to go and speak, and he saw the angels, the seraphim crying, holy, holy, and one of them uh, touched a burning coal to his meat. All that takes place in, in, the, in, the, in the throne room of God, the temple, heavenly temple of God. Isaiah is given that vision, so... There's another prophet in uh, in First Kings called Micaiah. This is not Micah; it's Micaiah. Uh, he saw the throne of God when he was commissioned as a prophet. Uh, you can find it's going to be in First Kings twenty two nineteen, and uh, that's where it says Micah himself says. Therefore, this is First Kings twenty two nineteen. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne, and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And so, you know, Micah the prophet, when he's commissioned as a prophet when he was given forth the message of God he he shares that he himself was given this the same vision and you know of course we already talked about Daniel he saw the throne of God he describes it as the son of man ascending to the one who sat on the throne which was called the ancient of days in Daniel 9, 7 9 so Think about this for a minute to be honest John isn't telling the student of the Old Testament anything really that the student hasn't seen before. Uh, he is beginning to speak the vision that God gave him, and he is using the same language that the Old Testament prophets used when they were commissioned to speak God's word to his people. John is told to come up here. He is brought to the heavenly throne room of God, just like Isaiah was. And, and, and Christ tells him, I'm going to show you what must take place uh, after these things. And so we're going to, we're going to see this heavenly uh, tabernacle uh, as we go throughout chapter 4 but I want you to see that what you're what you're seeing here is not something that is uh, it's going to have elements that are new that the Old Testament prophets didn't uh, include and it's going to be uh, specifically from a different vantage point that the other uh, Old Testament prophets saw it but it's the same vision it's the throne room of God it's it's uh, it's the the heavenly uh, holy of holies it's it's what the the tabernacle and the temple uh, are patterned after this is the reality and it's something that the Old Testament saints had seen uh, as well. The prophets of the Old Testament had seen as well. So John is being commissioned here. Uh, he is is receiving the same type of vision, uh, that the same type of revelation that Old Testament prophets had seen many times before. But what we're going to see as we go through chapter 4 and chapter 5 is that there's going to be something extremely different about John's, uh, about John's vision than the Old Testament. We'll get to that as we get to it. But, um, at the end here, it, Christ tells him, I'm going to show you what it is necessary to take place. Now, if you missed our discussion in chapter one, you missed an in-depth section about this phrase, what it is necessary to take place, what must, what has to happen, what it is necessary to take place, what necessarily must take place. It comes from Daniel uh, 2.28 from the Greek Septuagint. That's the Greek Old Testament. Uh, the Greek phrase, as we saw there, was ha de genestai, and, and I would encourage you to go back and, and listen to that. Um, to that section. Daniel is the only other person in the Bible uh, to use this phrase uh, as we see you know, it, it represented in the Greek Septuagint, which is the text that the apostles uh, quoted almost exclusively from. Um, it, uh, it means what's necessary to happen, not just what will happen, but what must happen, what is necessary to happen. And if you remember, Daniel used the phrase while speaking of what has to happen in the last days. Uh, remember, he was telling King Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel chapter two uh, the interpretation of his dream. You know, the giant statue. If you if you haven't listened to that first discussion, chapter one, you're at a real disadvantage here because I'm not going to go all the way back through it. But Daniel uses the phrase to speak of the last days, and here, like chapter one in Revelation, John uses the phrase "the last days" with uh, he, he replaces the phrase "the last days" with after these things. So he says, I'm going to show you what must happen after these things. He's plainly making a direct connection with Daniel's use of the last days. And so that's a real brief discussion. And I didn't hit on every point. You need to go back and listen to chapter one. If you have any question about that. So 
Most commentators here are going to agree that John is going to be talking about the last day days here, and indeed he is. Uh, his uh, quotation of Daniel, the context in which Daniel wrote, it's obviously to that point. So um, the question I have for you is when exactly, according to the Bible, are the last days? Um, this is where people, you know, with this connection with Daniel, it's easy for us to get to talking about, uh, you know, the last couple of couple of weeks until the end of history, and and we've talked about this before, but I want to press the point home to you that uh, in the New Testament apostles' minds, the last days are all the days between the resurrection of Christ and the end of history. They're not just the last couple days before the world blows up. Uh, we're, we're definitely living in the last days today. You probably heard many people say that, and I agree totally. We are living in the last days. But it's not because the world may end tomorrow. I mean, it, it, it may end tomorrow. I don't know. You don't know. Nobody knows. So it could end before I get done with this with this uh, podcast. Uh, we have no idea when Christ will return, and it could be any time, and you better be ready. Uh, but even if it doesn't come back for another thousand years, even if he doesn't come back for another thousand years, we're still living in the last days. God has given us everything he is ever going to give for salvation, relationship with him, revelation of himself. Uh, everything in salvation history has been fulfilled, and we're just waiting on the second coming. There won't be there won't be any new prophets giving any new information that the church has not been given given in the the apostles testimony in scripture uh, these uh, are the last days that we're living in right now Paul wrote in first Corinthians chapter 10 verse 11 he says now these things happen to them as an example and they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the ages have come he wrote that in the first century he said that the ends of the ages have come upon us and then Hebrews 1 1 and 2 says God after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in uh, many portions many ways has in these last days spoken spoken to us in his son so and then the writer of hebrews goes on in, in chapter 9 verse 26 it says but now once at the consummation of the ages that's what he calls his time he jesus has been manifest to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself he called his own times the consummation of the ages first peter 1 20, for he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but has appeared in these last times for the sake of you. And then you got the Apostle John, First John 2.18. He says, children, this is the last hour. And so I've given you John, Peter, the writer of Hebrews, and Paul all said that their time period was the last days. And indeed it was. And we are still in the last days. There's not going to be anything more that God is going to do to fulfill salvation, uh, to, vi- to fulfill redemptive history. It, it's done. It's complete. It's finished. So these are the last times. So You've got all these saying the same thing. Uh, What they meant was that the final consummation of God's purposes has been completed. Now, I'm going to come back to this as we go through. So we're going to answer. uh, We need to answer the question of whether this throne room vision is something yet to come in the future or if it's something relevant to the first century churches to whom this book is written. Uh, And, of course, it's relevant to us in whatever age we live in. But uh, I'm going to have to come back to that question in Chapter 5 because I believe that's where that question is answered. Is this throne room vision, is this scene that we're going to be privy to here, is it uh, something to take place in the future or is it something that has taken place already and is uh, relevant for our own day? Is it something that's that's taking place right now uh, and so we're going to we're going to see that as we move into chapter five so i'm going to have to put that off because the the question chapter four and chapter five are really a unit and uh, the questions answered in chapter five so let's move on with chapter four verse two says immediately john says i was in the spirit and behold a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne and verse three says and he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius which is another stone not Sardus, but Sardius, uh, in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne, like an emerald in appearance. So, uh, like we said before, John sees God's throne room. He sees the heavenly tabernacle. He sees the same vision that Isaiah saw, same vision that Ezekiel saw, but he's going to give us more clarity about it. Um, he's going to use the uh, different descriptions to show us uh, 
what is actually going on. The throne of God here, it's going to be the focus of all the events in chapters 4 and 5. The, the word throne is used it's like 16, 17 times in these two chapters. And what we're going to see in this vision of the throne uh, is that John sees here, uh, he's going to take elements directly from Ezekiel's vision in chapter 1. So I'd encourage you to go read that. I'm going to read portions of it to you. But John is going to... Um, he is going to say some of the exact same things that Ezekiel says in chapter 1 uh, of his prophecy when he saw uh, the throne of God. So as we look at what John sees here, you know, we're going to kind of be going back and forth to see what exactly is going on. I hope you got a pen. I hope you got a piece of paper. I hope you got your Bible open in front of you. Um, the first thing he mentions is we saw is that the one sitting on the throne has the appearance of a couple of different kind of precious stones, Jasper, Sardius, the rainbow uh, around the throne. Looks like an, the throne looks like an emerald. Uh, the text actually calls it the rainbow. It text actually calls it a bow, not a rainbow. Um, and, and some people have taken this to mean it's like a warrior's bow, like that shoots arrows. Um, and, and that's possible. We see God using a bow in the uh, descriptions of of himself in the Psalms and different places, but the meaning is probably a rainbow because of the similarity with Ezekiel's vision. Uh, Ezekiel's going to see it in the clouds, and, and so let's just say this: in this chapter, it's going to be easy for us to get sidetracked here and go off into discussing the intricate details of the meaning of the sardius stone and the rainbow, which points forward to the new creation and the Noah's day and all that you probably have heard before. But let's back up for a second. And look at the overall picture that John sees here. It's the same vision that Ezekiel saw. The difference is that John is seeing the vision from inside the heavenly tabernacle, while Ezekiel is seeing the vision from below, you know, by the river Kabar, uh, looking through the clouds. So let me read Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 26 through 28. And I want you to listen to the similarities in what John has just told us that he's seen. And Ezekiel, you know, has seen what he calls an expanse open up in the sky. And this is what he writes. This is Ezekiel 1, 26 through 28. Now listen for the similarities of what Ezekiel has seen and what John sees. It says, Now above the expanse there was over their heads there was something resembling a throne. This is Ezekiel seeing the throne in the sky. Uh, like lapis lazuli, which is... Um, a sapphire. The word is sapphire. So it's a precious stone in appearance. And on that which resembled a throne, high up was a figure of the appearance of a man. Then I noticed from the appearance of his loins and upward something like glowing metal that looked like fire all around within it. And from the appearance of his loins downward, I saw something like fire and there was a radiance around him. And as the appearance of the rainbow in the clouds on a rainy day, so was the appearance of the surrounding radiance. Such was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And when I saw it, I fell on my face and I heard a voice speaking. So you can see the similarity of what uh, he saw the rainbow, he saw the throne, he saw the appearance of the of the throne was like oh, precious jewels, you know, one like precious stones. And so all that you see in uh, all that you see in uh, John's vision as well. He's seeing the same thing that Ezekiel saw. And we also should make sure that we remember that this isn't the first time uh, the description of God has been seen. This is Ezekiel is not the first to see this vision either. Uh, in Exodus 24, 9 through 10, Moses and the elders of Israel, they saw the same thing. In Exodus 24, 9 and 10, it says, Then Moses went up with Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and they saw the God of Israel, and under his feet there appeared to be a pavement of sapphire, same word as the lapis lazuli that we see in uh, 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 Ezekiel, and, and as clear as the sky itself. And so, like I said before, we could make a big deal about why John describes the throne with these different jewels, you know, the the sardius stone and the emerald and, and the sapphire that we see in these Old Testament. But the point is clear. You get the idea. He sees the throne having the appearance of these precious stones. It's the same picture. It's the same God that was seen by Moses and and uh, and Aaron in, in Exodus. It's the same God that was seen by Ezekiel after as they were going into the Babylonian captivity. Uh, the point that John is making is he's giving us the same description of the throne of God in the throne room of God that we have seen many times before in in the Old Testament. So 
in in verse four of Revelation, it says around the throne were 24 thrones and upon the thrones. I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. So we're continuing to see the description of the throne room of God in the heavenly tabernacle. And John shows us that around the throne are 24 other thrones, which these elders sit on. Uh, Now here again, we're going to run into a lot of disagreement. In fact, Man, there's there's going to be very little from here on out that won't have a lots of disagreement, you know, among commentators attached to it. So, who are these elders? That's the question. Uh, some people say they they represent the Old Testament saints. Uh, some people say they're angels. Uh, others have said they represent the twelve tribes plus the twelve apostles of Christ together. Um, some people have even identified them with the twenty four books of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament had twenty four books in a, in the Jewish mind. Remember, because uh, the minor prophets were wrapped into one book. First and Samuel was one book. First and Second Kings was one book. First and Second Chronicles was one book. So there were twenty four books um so with all these different interpretations we've got to examine what the text actually says and compare what scripture says elsewhere using these pictures uh, what i'm going to do what i'm going to suggest to you is that this is the point and i'm going to try to i'm going to just tell you what it is and then i'm going to go back and make my case um, these 24 elders represent the whole of the people of god who are in christ uh, they res- they represent the people of god in every era, whether it's Old Testament saints, New Testament believers, I won't go so far as to say that it represents the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles because I I really, I mean, I, I'm not saying it doesn't because, I mean, that's possible, but I really can't back that up with anything. Uh, but I can demonstrate that the language used of these 24 elders is consistently used uh, for those who are stewards of the people of God throughout the throughout the Bible. Uh, first, they're called elders. The Bible nowhere calls angels elders at all, ever. Uh, the term elder is always used throughout Scripture to speak of those who administer and represent the saints uh, of God, uh, the people who are uh, appointed over the tribes of Israel uh, by Moses are called elders in Exodus twelve twenty one, in Exodus seventeen, Exodus eighteen, Exodus twenty four, and Numbers eleven. Uh, they're they're overseers of Israel. They're all they're always called the elders. Uh, they're the administrators that Moses appointed to head up the people of God in. Of course, we have the same term used in the New Testament as the office of overseer in the church. You know, in in First Timothy three, uh, one through seven, and Titus one, uh, five through nine, we're given the characteristics of those who hold the office of elder. You know, they they're not to be quarrelsome, able to teach, and, and all those different things. You see that uh, spoken of of an elder, and then of course in James chapter five, you know, you've got the verse there where if someone's sick, they're to call upon the elders of the church. So, if you just look at the term elder, do a study on the term elder you'll see that it always refers to men it always refers to those who oversee uh, god's people it never speaks about angels or or anything like that Um, it's always used of the the people who are stewards of of god's people Uh, so that's one line of evidence next uh we see that they're sitting on thrones they're wearing crowns these elders are also rulers who sit on thrones around the throne of god and this is another application to god's people i mean you don't have to go very far to see this i mean right before chapter four began in in chapter three verse 21 the believers who hold christ's testimony are said to be what they're said to be allowed to reign with christ we saw that in the church at laodicea it said he who overcomes i'll grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. That was right before this chapter. And then 2 Timothy 2.12, it says, if we endure uh, we will also reign with him. Uh, And likewise in in Revelation 2 verse 10, that was the letter to Smyrna. And in Revelation 3 verse 11, that was the letter to Philadelphia. Jesus tells the believers there that they're going to be given crowns if they overcome. And and it's important to remember here that these elders sitting on these thrones, they, later they're going to cast their crowns at the feet of the Lamb because, or at the feet of the throne because uh, it is through his authority, his power, that they're given the authority and allowed to reign on the thrones on which they sit. So um, this this picture 
scripture fits perfectly uh, with uh, believers as reigning with Christ. And and the second thing that we're going to see as we move into chapter 5, but in Revelation 1-6, believers are said to have been made kings and priests. They're, they're said to be made a kingdom of priests. So we're going to see that again in, in uh, later on this chapter, but or, or in chapter 5. Uh, but it's interesting to note that in Revelation 5, 8, we're going to get to that next time, these same elders who sit on these thrones, they're going to burn incense in the heavenly tabernacle, and that was the express duty of the Old Testament priests. So these elders here who sit on these thrones are seen as both kings and priests in, in Revelation's depiction. Uh, so the fact that they're called elders and they, they sit on thrones wearing crowns points to the fact that they're representing the people of God, as we've seen it already. But it also says uh, in Revelation that they're dressed in white. Uh, I mean, you don't have to use much brain power to remember that throughout the letters of Revelation, believers are told that they'll be granted to wear white garments in the presence of Christ. And, uh, and so the number is what uh, gets so many people. Why are there 24 of them? Um, and like we said earlier, some some see this as the twelve apostles and the twelve tribes together, uh, and and I guess that's possible. Um, but I find a much more plausible explanation in the fact that uh, in the temple of God, the the temple of God where God was worshipped, uh, there were twenty four courses divisions of priests. If you read First Chronicles twenty four, the whole chapter, there, you're going to have twenty four divisions of the priests of God listed. And then if you look in First Chronicles twenty five, you're going to also see twenty four divisions of the singers in the temple, the 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 song leaders for lack of a better way to put it. So the number twenty four here is not just arbitrary. We're we're looking into the heaven heavenly tabernacle. We're going to see that uh, we're going to see that made apparent in just a minute, but here is the heavenly tabernacle where the worship of God takes place. This is the reality of what the earthly tabernacle pointed to. So here is God sitting on his throne in the heavenly holy of holies, surrounded by the priests and the kings who are giving him worship. And and we've already seen that these 24 elders are are doing the work of priests in the Old Testament by offering incense in the temple. We're going to see that in Revelation 5, 8. So all that together uh, points to the fact that these elders, they're, they're the people of God. We are in the heavenly, um, the heavenly throne room of God. We're in the holy of holies. Uh, they represent uh, the people of God who are worshiping in spirit and truth. They've been made kingdom, a uh, kingdom of priests. They are the priests of God. They are the kings that sit on thrones. There's 24 of them because there are 24 divisions of the priests in the Old Testament, uh, and they they're going to we're going to see them worship here in just a minute they're going to worship in the presence of god they're going to do just as we do when we gather in one mind bringing our worship to christ um and this is also brought forth when we look at the rest of the chapter that describes the heavenly tabernacle uh, itself. So uh, think about what we've seen so far. John is uh, brought into the heavenly tabernacle. He's brought into the holy of holies. He's brought into the heavenly reality of what the, the tabernacle and the mercy seat and the holy of holies represented that he told Moses to build in the tabernacle. John is brought up and he sees a throne. He sees a throne and one sitting on the throne in the exact exact same uh, type of descriptions that Ezekiel saw, the exact same type as Moses and the elders of Israel saw, and the exact same type as Isaiah saw and uh, other prophets of the Old Testament. He sees the same type of throne room, same type of throne described in the same kind of language. He sees uh, these priests and kings who are around the throne, and they are giving worship to God. He is uh, he, he's viewing uh, the heavenly reality of of the worship of God that's depicted by all the signs and the pictures that we see in the Old Testament. And so in verse 5 of Revelation chapter 4, he's going to show us that out from the throne come flashes of lightning, sounds and peals of thunder, and there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Uh, here is another familiar representation of the presence of God seen throughout Scripture. Uh, we looked at this in chapter 1, so you can go back there and find it in depth. But at Mount Sinai, when Moses and the people came into the presence of God, there was what? There was lightning and thunder and smoke, and you can read about that in Exodus 19 and Exodus 20. Um, this is 
is uh, also the same thing that Ezekiel saw when he saw the throne of God. In Ezekiel 1.13, uh, the prophet sees lightning flashing from around the throne, and he's going to see these four living creatures that surround it going back and forth. We're going to see them here in a minute in Revelation. But... Um, of course, then you got the seven spirits of God, which are before the throne, and we've we've already seen this as well in Revelation. Uh, Revelation chapter one is is it's uh, like we saw there. It's an allusion to Zechariah chapter four. Uh, the prophet Zechariah sees a vision of the menorah. You know what the menorah is. Go back to Revelation one and listen to our discussion there. It's a lampstand with seven lamps on top of it. Uh, and, and if you go back to Revelation one where we discussed it, you'll hear why John now sees. Seven Seven separate lampstands instead of one lampstand with seven lamps uh, on it on each stand. And so what John's doing here is he's combining the visions of two prophets. He's combining the visions of Ezekiel and he's combining the vision of Ezekiel with Zechariah. He's putting both of their visions together and he's showing the, the presence of God, the lightnings and the peals of thunder and the seven spirits of God before the throne. He's seeing the culmination of all that has been shown to the prophets of God before. And so in the heavenly tabernacle, uh, uh, we're in the heavenly tabernacle, and uh, here you got the presence of God, kings and priests surrounding him, giving him worship. Um, and, and this is important to understand um, as we look at what John sees next. Uh, in verse 6, he says, And before the throne there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. Uh, let's take the sea of glass, crystal sea first. I mean, we've all heard the crystal sea, haven't we? I, uh, I've often used it as an example to young people describing eternal life, saying, you know, if I want to go fishing down at the crystal sea, you know, that's what I'll do. But what exactly is John seeing here in the throne room of the heavenly tabernacle? I mean, uh, is there an ocean in the presence of God with the people worshiping? <laughs> Uh, well, the answer is yes and and, and no. Uh, this C, and I put C in quotes, uh, it corresponds to what is called the bronze uh, laver. Uh, this was basically in, in the tabernacle. It was a huge uh, tabernacle and the temple. It was a huge wash basin that God told Moses to to build in the tabernacle so that the priests could wash themselves, purify themselves before they came into God's presence. Let me read to you in Exodus 30. Uh, I'm going to read verses 17 through 21 in Exodus 30. It says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, You shall make a laver of bronze with its base of bronze for washing, and you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar, and you shall put water in it. Aaron and his sons shall wash their hands and their feet from it when they enter the tent of meeting they shall wash with water so that they will not die or when they approach the altar to minister by offering up in smoke a, a fire sacrifice to the lord so that so they shall wash their hands and feet so that they will not die and it shall be a perpetual statute for them for Aaron is sentenced throughout the generations um what's interesting in this discussion now so what we're seeing what I'm showing you here is this is part of the furniture, so to speak. Uh, it's probably not the best way to put it, but this is part of the furniture that's in the tabernacle. This is part of the uh, the required furnishings. You got the lampstands, you got the the altar. We're going to see that depicted in in chapter five. We've got the the mercy seat, which is the throne of God. You got the bronze laver. You've got you've got all the elements of the earthly tabernacle here represented in the heavenly tabernacle, and of course course that's the way it should be because god gave moses the pattern by which he was to make the tabernacle and its furnishings and he was very specific about it and they corresponded to a heavenly reality so what you see here is that this crystal sea this crystal um this crystal sea of glass this this water this this uh ocean this laver it it, it show it's representative of a piece of the furniture that was in the tabernacle for washing it's a it's a a crystal sea and you think well it's not really called a sea that's kind of weird well what's interesting for our discussion is that when this huge wash basin um, this bronze laver was later built in the temple which was to correspond with the tabernacle floor plan it's not called a laver by solomon it's called a what it's called a sea in first corinthians seven twenty three, uh it, it says that solomon made 
quote, the sea of cast metal, 10 cubits from brim to brim, circular in form, and its height was 5 cubits, 30 cubits in circumference. Pretty dang big. And he called it the sea, the sea of cast metal, the sea of bronze. Uh, this same huge wash basin is is called a sea also in Second Chronicles uh, chapter 4. So take a look at what we're seeing here. We are seeing inside the heavenly tabernacle. Remember that Moses was given the pattern of the tabernacle to build it exactly to mirror the heavenly reality. That's Hebrews, the end of the book of Hebrews. Now we are seeing that reality. We see, uh, seeing the throne room of God, the mercy seat in the tabernacle where the Shekinah glory dwelt in the tabernacle. We've seen the lampstands, which were in the tabernacle. We've seen the priests of God giving him worship, which were in the tabernacle. We've seen, uh, the crystal sea, which is this bronze laver, which is another furnishing in the tabernacle. We are given a description of the heavenly tabernacle of God. Now, this part right here, you can skip past it if you're not interested, but it's very interesting to me. Uh, it may not be relevant to you, but uh, the, in Ezekiel's vision, which closely parallels what we're seeing here in John, um, it also makes reference to this uh, sea of crystal, but it calls it an expanse. Uh, Ezekiel sees the same thing John sees. He sees the throne room of God, just like John does, but John is seeing it from inside the tabernacle. He's looking across the crystal sea, looking across the laver to the throne of God. Ezekiel is looking up into the the laver, up into the crystal sea, so to speak, from the earth in seeing the throne room of God. Uh, John sees a crystal sea. E- Ezekiel is looking up through that sea to see the throne room. In Ezekiel's vision, he says what he calls, uh, uh, he calls it an expanse or a firmament in the sky. He sees living creatures that are going, that we're going to see here in a minute in Revelation. But in Ezekiel one twenty two, he says, this is quoting Ezekiel one twenty two. Um, it says over the heads of the living creatures there was a likeness of an expanse shining like awe-inspired crystal uh, spreading out above their heads and that's what he sees in, in 22 this crystal opening this crystal expanse in the sky and then in verse 26 of ezekiel 1 he shows us that above the expanse above this crystal firmament over their heads was the likeness of a throne in appearance like sapphire like these these jewels so ezekiel is looking up through this expanse that he calls crystal in appearance uh to the throne of god while john is looking over straight across this this crystal sea this brought this laver uh, of god in the throne room of god um it's very interesting to me i that may just be a little a quirk of mine but they're they're seeing the same they're seeing the same vision just from different perspectives john's told to come up here and and uh it's just interesting to me so in the last part of verse 6, we're introduced to these four living creatures. Uh, some translations are going to call them beasts, uh, but the word is actually zoan. It's it's properly translated as a living thing, living creature. It's where we get the word zoology. You know, it's where we get zoo from. Uh, they're, they're living beings. These beings are described for us at the end of 6 as, at the end of verse 6, as having you know being full of eyes and then uh, verse 7 through 8 uh, is going to read like this it says the first creature was like a lion and the second creature was like a calf and the third creature had a face like that of a man and the fourth creature was like a flying eagle and the four living creatures each one of them had six wings and and full of eyes around and within and day and night they did not cease to say holy 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 is the lord god the almighty who was and who is and who is to come now what does all this mean these this is a really strange picture these four living beings with these different faces and all that kind of stuff uh uh, it's a strange picture indeed and and so many people have commented on what all you know the eyes mean and what each of the faces mean giving various reasonings as to what these things mean and you're going to hear some giving different significance to each face and its representation like this one represents domesticated animals and this one's wild animals animals and it's talking about the creation and all those things but it's easy to get lost in the speculation of all these details it's easy to get lost in the fact that you know they have eyes and so that means they're omniscient and they know and 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 all that could be true and you can delve deep into those things um in lots of different ways um it's fine and dandy if you want to investigate all that and 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 search to figure those things out and what each of these animals may represent in the old testament economy and all that you know more power to you 
But I told you from the very beginning of this study that if I can't really back it up um, from actual text, I was going to do my best to refrain from all the speculation. Now, granted, I realize that I won't be able to do that perfectly throughout the book. I'm going to have to speculate on a few things and just kind of give evidence and show reasoning and all that. So I'm not going to be able to do that perfectly. But I think it would be beneficial for us here to back up and see what John is doing here rather than to get bogged down in all the speculation about the description of these beings. Let me show you what I mean. These living creatures are, uh, number one, they're full of eyes. Uh, Number two, they have four faces, um, you know, lion, calf, man, and an eagle. And number three, they have six wings. And number four, they cry, holy, holy, holy to the Lord. Uh, Those four descriptions, uh, in those four descriptions, John is mixing two Old Testament pictures of angels. Uh, of angelic beings there. Now, let me read this to you. I'm going to prove my case to you. So we can talk about what the eyes mean. We can talk about what the faces mean. But the reality is that these four living creatures are representing angelic beings uh, because that is the pictures that John is using. Um, In Ezekiel, we're going to see these same four living creatures. The part I read to you in Ezekiel earlier had the four living creatures in it that were around the throne. And and, in these four living creatures in Ezekiel were what? They were full of eyes. Let me read Ezekiel chapter one. I'm going to read verse five through 11. Uh, Ezekiel one, five through 11. It says within it, there were figures resembling four living beings. And this was their appearance. They had a human form. Each of them had four faces and four wings. They only had four wings. The ones in Revelation had six. We're going to talk about that in a second. Their legs were straight and their feet were like a calf's hoof. And they gleamed like burnished bronze. Under their wings were four sides, uh, were human hands. As for the four faces and the four wings of the four of them, their wings touched one another. Their faces did not turn when they moved. Each one went straight forward. As the for the form of their faces, each had the face of a man. All four had the face of a lion on the right and the face of a bull uh, on the left and the face of an eagle. Uh, and such were their faces. Their wings were spread out above and each touching, uh, uh, each had two touching another being and two covering their bodies. So you see in Ezekiel chapter one, he sees the same four living beings, same four living creatures, uh, same, you know, they had four faces, one of, uh, he calls it a bull here and it's a calf in revelation, but you got a man, uh, a bull, a, a calf, uh, uh, a lion and, um, Uh, an eagle. Uh, So he sees the same thing that John is seeing. But Ezekiel tells us a little more. He later describes these same living creatures in Ezekiel chapter 10, and he identifies them for us. They are cherubim. They are angels. In Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 20 uh, through 22, uh, it says, These are the living beings that I saw beneath the God of Israel by the river uh, by the river Kebar. So I knew that they were cherubim. That's what Ezekiel said. Each one had four faces, each one four wings, and beneath their wings was the form of human hands. As for the likeness of their faces, they were the same faces who appearance, whose appearance I saw by the river Kebar. Each one went straight ahead. So he identifies them for us in Ezekiel. We don't have to speculate. We don't have to wonder. He says these living beings with these four faces uh, that were full of eyes that I saw, these are the cherubim that are around the around God's throne. Uh, so we don't have to go into, I mean, we can go into depth about what the eyes mean and what the faces mean and all the speculation and all that. And that's great to do that. I don't have no problem with that. It does have meaning in God's, uh, God's revelation and we'll know perfectly what it means uh, when we... Uh, when we see him face to face, but the reality that you can't you can't miss the forest because you're staring at the tree is that he is talking about angelic beings, cherubim here. And then, you know, it doesn't take much. You probably already know that the other two descriptions, he describes them four ways. They're full of eyes. They have four faces, uh, different faces. Uh, they uh, have six wings, uh, and they cry, holy, holy, holy. Well, why do they have six wings when Ezekiel's angels had four wings? Uh, these, uh, these beings are also described in, in Isaiah chapter six, uh, the picture should already be resonating with you. If you've read Isaiah's prophecy, uh, you know, everybody's heard of the, the angels with six wings flying around crying, holy, 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 uh, sure you have. These are the seraphim. 
that Isaiah, Isaiah sees in the in God's temple, Isaiah chapter six. Remember, he says, "I saw the Lord high and lifted up; his train filled the what? Where was he at? He train filled the temple. So what we have here is God's throne room, the heavenly holy of holies, and John mixes two Old Testament pictures of angels to describe these living beings. He, he gives us four descriptions. They're full of eyes and they have four faces, like uh, Ezekiel's cherubim, and they have six wings and they cry, "Holy, holy, holy!" Just like Isaiah's seraphim. So what we're seeing here is John describing his surroundings. He's describing the heavenly throne room of God, um, surrounded by God's people, his priests giving worship, kings and priests, and by the angelic hosts that are crying, holy, 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 uh, worshiping God. This is exactly uh, this is exactly how we're going to end the, the fourth chapter. The the angels worshiping, crying, holy, holy, holy. The elders bowing down in worship, casting their crowns before the throne in worship of God. That's uh, Revelation 4, verse 9 through 10. As we finish the chapter, it says, And when the living creatures, these angels, gave glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders will fall down before him who sits on the throne and will worship him who lives forever and ever, and they'll crack cast their crowns before the throne saying, uh, but before we go into what they say, it's going to be important for us to see that here in chapter four, this song that they sing, this worship that they ascribe to God, I'm going to read it to you. It's in verse 11. Uh, it is as God, uh, as a sovereign creator, for you have created us, is basically they're going to worship him as creator. That song is going to change in chapter five, and that is why uh, I'm kind of making a big deal out of it. Uh, it's going to resonate with uh, the rest of the book, and it's going to be instructive for us uh, they're going to say in verse 11 this is the song that they sing uh, this is the worship that they give to the one on the throne it says worthy are you our lord and our god to receive glory and honor and power for this is why you're worthy it says you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created now that's going to be important uh, as we continue because their song you're worthy because you created is going to change and not because God's not worthy because he created anymore but we're going to see that it's going to be the lamb who is worthy and, and I could go into it right now but I'm going to save it for chapter 5 uh, there is uh, it's going to change into a song of worship uh, for this uh, for this lamb who's been slain and redeemed his people so as we end remember that chapter 4 and 5 go together uh, and right now we've only seen the first part. So uh, here we're introduced to the worship of God in his heavenly throne room. Uh, and now the the scene is being set, basically. Uh, he's setting the scene in chapter 4, and he's going to set it up to reveal what happens in chapter 5. Uh, this section, chapters 4 and 5, are pivotal for the book uh, of Revelation because all the judgments, listen to me carefully, all the judgments and all the blessings that pour forth in the rest of this book, the rest of the book of Revelation, are going to be because of what happens here in chapter 4 and chapter 5. This is the this is the moment where uh, all the things of the book of Revelation begins, and we're going to answer the question, when when. Is that is that sometime off in the future or is that something that's going on right now as we look at chapter five next time?